This is Acts, the last part of chapter 9, and the first 18 verses of chapter 11. So it was a large section to study and to read and to teach. Um, And we could dive down into many different segments of this, or we could skim across the top, or we could stand back and look at What is God really saying here? So when I pulled back to really look at what was going on after I was partway through kind of outlining it and stuff like that, it's just, there's repetition in here. You know, this story is told three times. You know, Paul's conversion last week was told several times over, and repetition is how we learn, isn't it? Repetition, saying it, you know, they come up, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say, I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to tell you what I just told you, right? Look how many times in Scripture the gospel is mentioned. Over and over and over. Why? Because it's so important. So when God has repeated himself, he wants us to get it. It's a very important thing. And this story here, this record of the account of Peter, is repeated three times. Because it's very, very important. Paul's conversion was important. It was pivotal on what God can do in a person's life to take a totally enemy of him and flip him around to be one of the greatest, wrote most of the scriptures, great missionary and just evangelist. I mean, there was Paul from the total enemy, breathing hatred threats. And here we're seeing that God is doing something pivotal also, especially in chapter 10. It is the account of how the exclusive message of the gospel that was Jewish becomes the gospel for the world. That's chapter 10. The gospel was just for the Jews, just for Israel. It was their Messiah, their Savior. And in this chapter, what we're studying today God opens up, it's the gospel for the whole world. So, it's repeated three times in Peter's vision, and then when Peter tells, when tells Cornelius about it, and then when he tells the Jews in Jerusalem about it. Three times, it's very important. And I can't emphasize it enough, but you just have to kind of get in there and just, just think about it and say, this was a mind change. They had to change the way they thought. They had to. So let's take a look at that, starting in the last, chap- last part of um, chapter 9 in verse 31. We can see that, you know, from Acts 1, 8, that, that Christ said that he is going to build his church. And he, he's going to use his people to do it. Um, Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so he's accomplishing this building of his church through the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. Acts 1, 8, our memory verse. He is still building the church and he's still using us. So what happened here with this building material of the apostles of Paul and Peter and Philip and all those guys, he uses us also, and he's still building and he's still expanding. 
in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, wasn't that what he prophesied would happen? And it's happening, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we can see that the church is at a place in history where there was peace. Um, They were walking in the fear of the Lord. I don't know how many Christians today really walk in the fear of the Lord. And they're comforted by the Holy Spirit, and that meant they multiplied. Then there were some political changes going on at this time that attributed to some of their um, temporary respite from um, persecution. For one, the very compliant Pilate was no longer the governor. Herod Agrippa's authority had expanded now, and that restricted some of the Jews' freedom that they had. Okay, so when the hierarchy, the government changes, and, you know, one who is kind of passive, oh, it doesn't matter what you do, and he's gone now, and this new guy comes in, and he's, like, ruling with more sternness and everything and more boundaries, the Jews had to kind of close back in. That was part of why the church was left alone and was able to grow. And the other one was we know that Saul was no longer persecuting them. He was one of them now. So they had a time of respite and peace and growing and building and everything. So Christ's witnesses, who are the followers, we are, we follow his example. To be Christ-like is carrying on the work of Christ. We are the light of the world. Um, we, we carry on the gospel. We, we are becoming Christ-like ourselves. We're being transformed into the image of the Son. And so we emulate who he is. We reflect who he is. And when we do that, we are like him. We are doing his work. So we're going to run into two stories here um, with, um, that, that tell us that Peter is being Christ-like, all right? Mark 2, 11, where Jesus healed the paralytic, what did he tell him? I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Peter was there. Peter saw Jesus do that. We're going to see him do this in this story today. And the second one is from Mark 5, 41, where Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, where he says, he takes her by the hand, and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Peter was, Peter, James, and James, there are only a handful of people that were in that room when Jairus did that with that, when Jesus did that with Jairus' daughter. He had pushed them all out. So there's similarities here to let us know that as Christ builds the church, he's not here anymore, but he lives through us. And so we, we are like him. So let's take a peek at what's going on here. Now, there's a little bit of a head scratcher here if you're looking at it from a literary point of view, is that we just got through with Paul's huge conversion, and all of a sudden we're back talking about Peter. What's that about? The Bible is a beautiful piece of literature. There's a point in that. The first 12 chapters of Acts, it's mostly about Peter, what Peter's been doing. And then beginning with chapter 9 to 12, we have a blending of what Peter's doing and what Paul's doing. And through 9 to 12, we see kind of Peter's kind of backing more out of the story 
and Paul's becoming more dominant in his story. And so by the time we get to chapter 11, it's pretty much all about Paul. Why would God's spirit have Luke write like this? It's the blending of the church. It's the blending of the church. Because Peter was to the Jews, right? He was to the Jews. And now in what we're finding out now in this chapter 10 we're going to get into, we're having it's now going to be opened up to other people, the Gentiles. And so even the writing of this shows us how God is blending the church, building the church, pulling it together, making the gospel not strictly to the Jew. Um, So we go back and look at Peter. Peter's interaction here is with a man who is not a believer. 32, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man who wasn't a believer, otherwise they would have called him a saint or a disciple, named Aeneas. And Aeneas was bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed, and Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you. He didn't say, I heal you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all, these words are important, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord, turned to the Lord, became believers, quit doing what they were doing and became believers and followers of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? That is very amazing. Peter was not promoting himself. He was kind of going after what he had heard Jesus talk about in John 14 with the, uh, the branches and the vines where it says, Abide in me and become apart from me. You can do nothing. So as long as Peter was close to God, was seeking God's will, is following hard after that example to be a holy, godly man, it's, we can pretty much do a, a lot of things. First Peter 4.11, Peter tells us this, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies... Not our, not our strength, but the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We serve, we think, we do, we live life through the power of his spirit focused on him. It's a constant, Molly, get out of the way and let me <laughs> quit thinking that way. Think this way. You don't need to go there. You need to do this. I mean, it's a constant day-to-day, it's, it's life. It's, it's living life that way. So this was Peter, um, and he commanded Aeneas to respond to this healing. I mean, if he just sat there and thought, well, I don't believe that Jesus Christ is going to heal me, he wouldn't have been healed. But he got up. When he got up, um, he was immediately healed, and the results were widespread. What was going on? The church was being built. The church was growing. All these people turned to the Lord. They all came to salvation. Christ is building his church. Okay, that's the first example that we have. Peter also witnessed another example of Jesus rising, raising someone from the dead, and that was um, um, Lazarus. And Jairus' daughter is kind of a combination of those two things. Now, Dorcas here, as we get into that um, 
event, Dorcas is like what we would call today a Proverbs 31 woman. Didn't you think that? She's like the Proverbs 31 woman, does all this amazing things. Well-loved, a true godly woman, a servant of the church, and she was just had done a lot of things. So her death was a serious blow to the church in Joppa. That was, they, taking out that saint was just, that was, that was hard hit. That was felt by a lot of people. So they, they didn't bury her immediately, but they laid her in an upper room. Now, were they anticipating a miracle? We don't know. We don't know. Maybe that happened because it was pretty commonplace for, especially in Jerusalem, for the Jews to bury them pretty, pretty immediately. Outside of Jerusalem and Joppa, maybe they didn't have such strict rules or whatever, but for whatever reason, she didn't get buried right away. Um, I'm going to jump down to 40 because this is a large passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing. So she's there, and they send for Peter. And here's a but Peter. But Peter, he comes in, and he sees all these widows, and they're all crying. They're showing all the wonderful things she's done. And he puts them all outside He knelt down and prayed. It's important. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Just like Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. He took that little girl by the hand and raised her up. It's important, too, that we see that he prayed. Was he anticipating rising her from, raising her from the dead? I, we don't know. But he went in there and he, and he prayed. And he was able to be the tool that God wanted to use at that time. Now, the church is young. The church is growing. The church is doing radical things. This is brand new. This gospel is something that they, they couldn't even comprehend. So he was do, God was doing dramatic things, signs and wonders to, to um, validate the gospel. Okay? We can't go in there and I go in the hospital down here and raise people from the dead. There's no need for that right now. God can still do that. And in other cultures, he may even do that. But for this, when the church is young, these, these events were done to just really emphasize out of signs and wonders the truth of the gospel. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now, Maybe we're not going to go out and go to the hospital and raise people. But I, I believe that Christians today don't live near the potential of the power that they can live in. Truly. We live in doubt. We live in anxiety. I mean, come on. Anxiety is lack of trust in God. And we live like that. And now out of any other time in history... Today, with this pandemic, with this worldwide thing going on, it is our time to shine because the whole world is falling apart in anxiety and fear. And as believers, as God's witnesses, we can have the peace of God. Um, And that light's going to shine all the more brighter, the the darker the world gets. So we we can do immeasurable things. 
through Christ, that if we allow him to work through us, okay? So what happens here? The results of this are many believed, and the church expanded with this also. In verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed, not the whole town, but many believed in the Lord. Many believed it was growing. Now, this last verse here, verse 43, kind of an odd verse. You sit there, why on earth would they even mention that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon and Tanner? Well, God is working in Peter's heart because Simon the Tanner was someone who worked with dead animals. Simon the Tanner was someone who was deplorable and unclean because he worked with dead animals. For a devout Jew to be around a dead animal, that was a big, big problem. You had to go and cleanse yourself and do all. I mean, it was a big ritual thing for them if they were around any kind of death. And here in this one verse here, we find that that says so much that he stayed in his home with him. God is working in his heart and preparing Peter for what's going to happen here. He's letting Peter know it's okay to stay with Simon the Tanner. You're not going to be contaminated if you do that. Okay. Now, he's going to have a problem when he goes back and tells his buddies that he stayed in Simon the Tanner's house, but we're going to get to that at the end here. God, Christ is building his church And he's using his followers as building material to do this. He's growing it in numbers, and he's also strengthening it in stability as he works through Peter and strengthens Peter and gets him a better understanding of what the gospel is all about. Because Peter, a couple chapters back, probably would have never been in the Tanner's house. But you can see now how God is growing him and reassuring him and strengthening him and I'll sanctifying him and transforming him into the image of Christ himself, that is building the church also. Because if you have a building, if you have a church with a bunch of believers and they're wishy-washy Christians, is it a strong church? Not really. If you, have, you could have a zillion people in there. It could be a mega church. But if everyone's kind of wishy-washy, is it a strong church? Is it being built? It might be big. But God wants the church to be strong. You can go to a little congregation, a small group of people, and if you've got solid Christians in there, that's a strong church, isn't it? That's a powerful church. So it grows in numbers and it grows in strength. All right, so God's church is being built and the gospel is spreading. So let's look one more time before we go into chapter 10 here at Matthew 16. Matthew 16 Verse 15, verse 13, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, is about, you know, who do these people say that I am? Oh, they say you're John the Baptist, or you say they're Elijah or Jeremiah, blah, 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 blah. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock of belief that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that last verse there, that chapter, verse 19, about the keys of heaven, it's been a lot of back and forth. What does it mean, the keys of heaven? What does the keys of heaven mean? Well, I don't know. But I have, I, have, I have another idea to throw out. This is an idea that I hadn't really thought about before, and it makes sense to me. He's talking to Peter, right? He's talking to Peter. And he's giving Peter the keys to heaven, the keys to salvation, the keys that opens up salvation. And when he opens that way to salvation, people will be able to come in. Could it be that he has given him the keys to two distinct groups of people? Keys to the Jew first at Pentecost. Peter was the one who spoke and preached the gospel to all those Jews. He, he laid out the gospel. And with those keys of the gospel, all those Jews in Pentecost, it was like a major event, a pivotal point in history. And then now in verse chapter 10 of this Acts, he's giving them the keys to open up the whole floodgates for the Gentiles. Because when he goes to Cornelius' house, that's the first all-Gentile congregation audience that, that is going to hear the gospel. It could be. Just something to kind of play around with. Makes sense, right? Because when you share the gospel with someone, you open up a key. You open up a door. You open up the opportunity of salvation there. First to the Jew at Pentecost and then to the Gentile in Cornelius' home. And then Peter, we know, we just talked about, will fade out of the picture and Paul will take the Gentiles and run with them. So this chapter 10 is a historical changing. (laughs) It's pivotal. One commentator even said this is probably the most important, one of the most important chapters in, in Scripture, chapter 10. Well, it's all really important, but this is, you've got to understand, the Jews, at, up to this point, only believed that the, the, the gospel and the Messiah was for them. Maybe some scattering of other people, but they had to become a Jew first in order to be a believer, okay? You want to become a believer in Jesus? You want to believe that Jesus is? Okay, then you have to be circumcised. You have to become Jewish and then, because you're Jewish, you can, you can have salvation through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, God is saying, no, the Gentile can come to me as a Gentile. This is groundbreaking stuff. And Peter's, Peter's slowly getting that, okay, I can hang out with Simon the Tanner, but if he's going to become a believer, he's going to have to become a Jew first, right? Okay, so that's where this is all going with chapter 10 here. So it's a historical shift, a major shift in history here because the gospel is just not for Israel. And so God is speaking now to Cornelius and getting Cornelius ready. Just God just works behind the scenes and such a great networker. And in in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, uh, what was known as an Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. What are we finding out about Cornelius? Well, Caesarea was the headquarters of the Roman governor of Judea, very, very Roman, and Cornelius was an officer in the Roman army, okay? And all the Gentiles and all the Jews, there was a 
very strong, natural dislike. But it says that Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile, which means he was seeking the true God. He was seeking um, that Messiah. He was looking for God. Okay, but he hadn't converted to Judaism or, or circumcision. But he was believed that there was a Messiah coming. He believed that there was a heaven and earth. He believed in paradise, but he wasn't a converted. He didn't convert to Judaism. He maybe even worshipped the one true God and had an understanding of who Messiah is. Okay, so he's praying about the ninth hour, and he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. And at this point, I don't know if he knew he was an angel because later on we find out when he's telling him that a man in brilliant clothes was there. But this angel entered Cornelius's house. An angel can go into a deplorable Gentile's house. Okay, let that stick with you. And he says, your, your prayers have been heard in your alms, and, and, now send me, um, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So he gets this angel in there, and he's telling him to do this. Okay, he has a, he's preparing Cornelius with all of this stuff. Um. So he's telling him, and then he's going to tell Peter also, okay? It wasn't a, um, well, let me just keep going on. Cornelius um, obeys God, and he prepares his, as God is preparing his heart to hear the gospel. He gets up, and, he's, and he gets his, the angel spoke to him, and he departed, and he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among all who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he immediately responds and obeys to what this angel has told him to do. All right. It's interesting. That Romans 10 verse, Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him or whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or telling them? They needed to hear. They needed to hear the gospel. And so God is preparing Cornelius. He's sending him out to get Peter. Uh, Meanwhile, we're going to find out that God is preparing Peter also. Okay, the next day, God starts preparing Peter through a vision. All right, so we have in verse 9 that Peter's there hanging out, Simon's house, pretty comfortable there with the, you know, deplorable Gentiles and everything. He's on the rooftop praying, and he starts getting hungry, and he falls into a trance, okay? And then he has this this vision that comes down. Um, At first, it's God is telling him three times. I won't get into all the details of that, Um, of what it is, this sheet with all these different kind of animals on it, clean and unclean. And the Jews were very rest- very uh, restricted in what they could eat. Could be a lot of it was because of the early on Leviticus and stuff, the Old Testament way back, they didn't have hot enough heat to kill some bacteria, right? 
shellfish and things like that. You know, there were some things that they couldn't do just because of health reasons of it. Um, and then as the, you know, cooking and stuff advanced a little bit more, they got to be able to kill some of the bacteria and became healthier. And there were other reasons too. God just laid down some strict rules. If you're going to be holy and walk with me, you just, it's not just a free for all. It needs to do some of these things. So I'm not going to get into all of the Jewish traditions of that, but there were restrictions there. And God is saying in this vision, everything is okay to eat. There's all these animals up there. It's all okay. He opened up the door to be able to eat all this stuff. And Peter is shocked because what he's telling him to do is that to go against what he was, what his Jewish thinking, he can't do this and everything. And he's thinking about this three times. God's telling him, no, Peter, this is okay. You can eat all this stuff. And so he's really hungry and he's thinking about eating these things that maybe he's never, probably never tasted before thinking that God is only talking about food. And then what happens? Boom, God interrupts his thoughts right in the middle of him thinking about this, opening his mind up to say, oh, okay, God's letting me do these things, which before it wasn't okay. And now God is saying, now it's okay. Knock, knock, knock. Who's at the door but these three men in verse 17? While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision meant, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius made an inquiry of Simon's heart and stood at the gate and called out, is Peter in there? And while Peter was pondering the, vi- the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, hey, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and occupy them, accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. You see how reaffirming this is? It's like, okay, well, I'm going to go down there. And so he opens, and who's, who's there at the gate? A soldier? He sent a soldier, right? He sent two of his servants, and a, and a Roman soldier was there. Well, this is like the worst of the food on that sheet, probably. <laughs> would have been easier to eat one of those things than to go with these guys. But God is working in his heart. Um, He's shocked to see them. All Peter is, all he had learned was just being questioned now, was coming into, in his mind, saying, okay, God is now telling me this. So Peter goes, though, because he's he's realizing that the traditions now and the customs of Israel... He can go against those, but he can't go against the word of God. He's starting to see the difference there, what that means. So this is a historical meeting between Cornelius and Peter. This meeting, when he goes there to his house in verse 24, um, oh, Peter invites these guys in, okay, as as his guests. So he's starting to get pretty pretty acclimated to some of this stuff. So the next day... They rose and they went away and they went there um, with some of his brothers from Joppa accompanied him. He brings six pals along and they follow the following the next day. They go to Caesarea to Cornelius was expecting him and Cornelius had called together all of his relatives and all of his close friends. So he had all these Gentile believers there kind of waiting. He was all prepared. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I'm just a man like you. So Peter went into Cornelius' house. 
And he gets in there, and verse 26 says, Peter lifted him up, and he began to talk to him, and he began to explain why Peter, a godly Jew, had entered this house of a Gentile. He gets it. Peter is getting it. So he's explaining it to them why he was there because God, you yourselves know, you guys know, all you people, all these Gentiles in this room know it is unlawful, ooh, unlawful for me to come, for a Jew to come and associate with you or even visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you have sent for me. So he's pretty much saying, I'm here. I'm breaking the law. I'm breaking all these Jewish laws and everything. But this is why. Because God sent me. God said it was okay to come here and do this, all right? And he, they say to him in verse 30 then, Cornelius says, okay, he starts explaining again. What's going on? So you see the stories now repeated, right? When there's repetition, it's important because this is an historical change. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house. He was praying, and behold, a man standing before me in bright clothing. Was he an angel? Whatever. That's what it says. Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. And he repeats the whole thing back to him. Go exactly to where he was, lodging with Simon a tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you, and here you are. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Beautiful setup. God prepared it. He brought all these people here to hear the gospel. Only God can do something like this. would have never, ever happened if there was an in divine intervention. Peter would have never gone to with them, and they would have never sent to some deplorable Jew someplace. Wouldn't have happened. But the divine intervention of God is changing history now. Jesus Christ coming is the most significant thing that's ever happened. And throughout history, it's been preparing for that day. And now that it's happened in history, it's like it's for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. So, historical account there. You know, we get these things where these politicians sign these peace treaties and everything. It ain't nothing compared to what happened in Cornelius' houses here, okay? And Peter says in verse 34, so Peter, this is his opportunity now. He's opening, he has that key, he has that key, and he's going to open it up now for these Gentiles. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, that he is Lord. You yourselves know what happened in Judea. And then he goes on to spill it all out. Jesus is Lord of all. That would have been a blasphemous thing for Peter to say before he saw that vision of the the animals come down. And yet, had he said it in the Old Testament, you know, 
because he is Lord of all. It isn't. It's in Scripture. It's in, it's in the prophecies. It's, in, it's out there. This isn't just a change of plan. God said, oh, let's just open it up to here. It had been all along. It's the layer, like an onion, it's the layer that was peeled back now for such a time as this. Okay, and he starts explaining the gospel, um, what Jesus has done, all the good deeds, filled by the Spirit, um, doing things and healing things, um, putting, you know, conquering the devil who was oppressing everything and stuff like that. And he was just the power of God. It was more powerful than the devil. And they killed him. They hung him on a tree in verse 40. But God raised him on the third day, and he spells it all out. And while he's saying all this stuff, telling them that he's going to be the judge of all the earth while he is saying this stuff. God's spirit is moving in this group of people. Peter says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Very profound, very powerful thing. Whoever believes the broadness of God's promise of salvation, okay, um, opened right up. And so what is the result of this? God-fearing Gentiles are filled with the Holy Spirit and are baptized. They're listening to him, and God's Spirit is moving, and they go, and they, and they don't have to convert to Judaism. He brings them right on down there and baptize them. He's taken them as they is. Isn't that the wonderful thing about Jesus? We don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to say, oh, you know, I really, you know, I've got to get my life in order before I can. No, it's not about any of that, Okay. The Gentiles received the exact same spirit as the Jews at Pentecost. That's why they started speaking in the tongue, speaking the languages and doing things like that and all this kind of stuff. It was like an experience of Pentecost to say that the same spirit at Pentecost is the same spirit here. Peter is witness to this. The six men that he brought with him are witness to this, okay? A new plan that God had been out from the beginning, Isaiah 60, 1 to 3. Isaiah, long time ago. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick dark, darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So Isaiah wrote about how nations will come and how kings will come and be a part of this. In Matthew 8, 5 to 3, Jesus even talked about this when the, with the face of the centurion uh, when he was talking about them. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith when he wanted to heal him. And he said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus had talked about this too. All right? This was the plan. God's building his church. He's using his followers. And Peter is becoming more user-friendly material. Right? He was a little bit more difficult to kind of pliable. Oh, I don't know if I do that. Because he, he had a bad habit of telling God no a lot of times, didn't he? But he's more willing now and he's becoming stronger. He's becoming more usable building material. All right, let's wrap this up in one minute. Because 11 is when now he's got to go back to all the objections to the Jewish believers in um, Jerusalem. And 
explain to him. And we don't have to, it's not up to us to persuade people. There's something out there called apologetics, which is an okay thing, but it's, we speak the truth. Peter goes through here in, in these verse, chapter 11, these verses here, and he is just reiterating facts, isn't he? He's just telling them what happened for the third time because repetition is important. He's not persuading them. He's just saying, this is the truth. This is what happened. And God's spirit is the one that persuades these people and sees, okay? They were objecting him in verse 4, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And then he goes through and tells everything that was happening all the way down. Three people arrived. He had six people with him. And there was an angel in his house. Okay, verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I can stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they began to glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I bet you every single person in this room is glad that verse is in there. I don't think there's any Jews out there, are there? I don't know. <laughs> Wendy, Wendy was our Jewish, our Messianic Jew. And, but if that didn't happen, where would we be? This chapter is so powerful for us. God uses us to build his church, Okay? Um, I just want to leave you with this thought that if he's still building his church, okay, not complete yet, fullness of the Gentiles hasn't come in yet because we know what's going to happen when that happens, and he's using us as his building material. So the question that we need to ask ourselves how user-friendly are we with that material? Are we the kind of material that he has to like bend and pry into shape and cut new to do the work to help build the church? Or are we more willing because we're so, so focused on Christ and so together with him and praying and the devotion and walking and taking every opportunity out there? Meet the day with an opportunity. There is somebody out there who may need to hear the gospel. And they won't know unless they hear. And you may say, well, this is the Bible Belt. You'd be surprised. God, help us, almighty God, to be the best building material there is. High quality, uh, easy to use, durable. um, Just help us to be tuned into you, almighty God. We love you. In the name of Christ, amen.